We'll bow for a word of prayer as we begin our time. Father, we thank you once again to be here, to be together. Open your word again, Lord. We pray for those who aren't with us for whatever reason that may be, that their hearts would be uh, challenged, encouraged, shaped by uh, whatever they uh, are hearing that might honor and glorify you tonight. Lord, we pray that the words we hear, the things that we think about would be uh, uplifting to us, would remind us of who you are and what you've accomplished on our behalf so that we might be your children. So use this time for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been some time since we have been here in this text. I I don't remember how many weeks it's been. But because of that, and um, I think it would be really profitable for us to hear once again uh, the words of John as he describes for us this final earthly moment of Jesus' life. And so follow along for uh, uh, along with me as I begin to read for us from verse 17 all the way down to the end of this chapter. And they took Jesus, therefore, and went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him. With him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And they said, therefore, to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide who shall it be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing... They cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a, a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Throughout our study, we have been reminded why John has given us the details concerning the death of Jesus. In fact, the reason that these details are here are the same reason that every detail is given in the Gospel of John. John. 
And that is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in His name. And so we could say that this is here for the purpose of the gospel. The very narrative that we have just read is here so that others might hear the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. That truth shows and proves that Christ is central to Christianity. It seems rather odd to have to say that, but that is reality. Christ is central to Christianity. And since Christ is central to Christianity, then the final week of his life is the center of Christianity as well. And if the final week of his life is central, then the center point of it all is this very moment that we see here in these verses. The death of Jesus Christ. That is the central moment. And that makes the final words of Jesus Christ a definition of all that takes place through salvation. Let me say that again. The final words of Jesus Christ here, because His life, because His death is central to all of it, that makes His final words the definition of all that takes place through salvation. That is simply to say that the words of Jesus at the point that He dies reveals to us that all of the things that His death was, in a final analysis, really, it was the monumental achievement for all those who would be saved. This is the apex moment. It's interesting to note that of all the other gospel writers... All of them tell us that Jesus uttered a loud cry just before he died. And from the words of chapter 19 and verse 28, it is clear that those words were not the words of a defeated man. They were not the words of a man who was resigned to his inevitable end but rather they were the fulfillment of a predetermined plan. Where verse 28 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. The word Accomplish there in our English is the same word that is used in verse 30 where it's translated, it is finished. It's the very same word in the original language. Jesus, knowing that all things were finished, all things had already been finished, therefore said in verse 30, it is finished. And so here is Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Scriptures being the inspired Word of God. Surely, surely, the full intent of those words here in chapter 19 are to convey that all things related 
to the reason that he had come to the earth were in fact completed in his actual death. In other words, all that was accomplished was a declaration. It is finished is a declaration by the Son of God that the turning point, the turning point in all of history had been reached in the realm of time. The very point in the outworking of time had come as it had been planned in eternity past. And so this makes Christ's death then unique from every other death. Because no other death has ever or will ever accomplish what the death of Christ accomplished. I already stressed the fact that the death of Jesus was no coincidence several weeks ago when we were looking at this, that Jesus was in fact in charge of the whole situation. And here we see in verse 28, we're going to spend our time here just here in verse 28 to 30 since we've covered all those other portions before. <clears throat> but we can see here in verse 28 that Jesus knew that all things had already been accomplished. All things in his physical life, as well as all things in his suffering, as well and especially all things for our spiritual life. The time had come in the economy of God, in the plan of God, for him to yield up his life. In other words, he was not on the cross one nanosecond longer than the Godhead had planned for him to be on the cross, and he would not be in the grave one nanosecond longer than the Godhead had planned for him to be there. In fact, all things were going along just as he had planned it when before time in the wisdom of the Godhead, the Trinity came together and decided just how to redeem you and I. All of this was done as a fulfillment of what had been declared before. You notice it here, by the way, verse 24. They said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. Why? So that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's a, a quote of Psalm 22 and verse 18. Scripture that had been written hundreds of years prior is now here by these men who did not even know they were fulfilling Scripture. And that's why verse 25 says it that way. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. They thought they were just acting as according to their own wisdom and according to their own ways and according to the way they always did things. And yet it was always in the plan of God that they would do that. Verse 28 after this, Jesus, knowing all things had been accomplished in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. Psalm 69, 21. Psalm 69, 21. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
It's exactly what Jesus Christ is saying here, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He said, I'm thirsty. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 69 and verse 21. We haven't looked at it yet, but verse 36, for these things came to pass. What things? Well, the caring for the body of Jesus Christ on the Sabbath day or before the Sabbath would happen so that they could take care of the Passover. These things came to pass that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of Him shall be broken. Fulfillment of Psalm 34, verse 20. Exodus 12, verse 46. Numbers 9, verse 12. And of course, then again, also in verse 37, again, another Scripture says, they shall look on Him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12, and verse 10. So all of these Scriptures combine to prove the same thing. They prove that the death of our Savior was an event both seen and an event predetermined by the Godhead before it ever happened. Seen and predetermined beforehand. Seen in the mind and heart of God and the Trinity as they conferred together in the wisdom of the Godhead and predetermined according to the same reality. Hundreds of years before this moment in John's Gospel, hundreds of years before the event ever took place, every part, all things, were arranged by the divine counsels of the Godhead, even down to the minute details. Even down to the separation of the clothing of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, I thirst, we read that statement was a fulfillment of Scripture. It was a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21, that I read just a moment ago. So from the moment of Jesus' arrest to these final words, everything was foreknown. Everything was foredetermined. Everything came to pass. Every portion of it was in accordance with the settled plan and design of God declared in His Word. And so when Christ died, He died according to the Scriptures. Which is exactly what Paul said to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4. Remember, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Simply stated, nothing was left undone because God had determined it. God is controlling the whole moment. And so verse 29 tells us, there's a jar full of sour wine standing there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour in, the, in it, put it on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Crucifixion was heinous. It would have caused the need for deep-seated thirst to be relieved 
you were hanging there on the cross hour after hour, right at the edge of death, your mouth would have grown severely dry. And Jesus Christ, being fully man, yet without sin, was not immune to the effects of dying. And so they gave him sour wine. I read Psalm 69, verse 21, and Psalm 69 really seems to indicate in the original language that it was more like vinegar than it was wine, like we might think. It was like a sour drink, something that was normally there for the soldiers, the soldiers and other workers that would have been on the scene. They would have indulged in it. So it wasn't necessarily something others would have had. It's really interesting when I read these kinds of things in my own mind and I think about sour wine or or a vinegar-like drink. Any drink with those qualities would not make your mouth feel quenched. I don't know if you've ever taken a spoonful of vinegar, but it certainly doesn't, you don't go, man, I just love that. Wow, that's going to be good. No, it seemingly brings about greater dryness. And yet Psalm 69 declares in verse 12 where it says, I was the song of the drinkers of strong drink. This is Jesus being the mockery of those who take strong drink to soothe their own pains. And yet here the text says this was all according to the predetermined plan of God. Simply another reminder for us as Christians today, another reminder that mankind is the instrument in the hand of God to accomplish His predetermined plan. All of the players, all of the actors, all of those on the scene, all of those there that day were simply part of the plan. Part of the scene in accomplishing and fulfilling the Scriptures as God had said hundreds of years before. This is no coincidence. Why was it this way? Why was it this way? So that we might believe. So that we might believe Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing we would have life in His name. That's why it's here. And so when we come to verse 30, verse 30 says this, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. The same word we hear from accomplished in verse 28, it is accomplished. It is accomplished. And He bows His head and gives up His spirit. I don't know about you, but each and every time I read that verse, and I've read it hundreds of times, I am immediately driven back to all that is finished through the death of Christ. And I imagine in all of those things, there's none more important than the atonement that was finished on the cross. Nothing more important than the atonement. Randy brought it up earlier. We don't use that word much in our modern day language, but it carries 
far too much weight for us not to consider. Even here tonight, it's rather ironic. I hadn't talked to Randy about what I was going to talk about tonight in this passage, and yet here we are talking about the atonement, and some of you even mentioned it. No other death was ever like the death of Jesus Christ. No other death that has ever occurred throughout all of history and humanity can match the death of Jesus Christ. Simply because Jesus alone achieved our salvation by His suffering. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, in order to redeem those under law, so that we might receive the full rights of sons. We know from our study of Romans in chapter 3 that Paul said it this way, verses 21 to 26, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That was to demonstrate His righteousness. Why? Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, to say that the atonement is important would simply be an understatement. There is nothing more important. And therefore, I want to look at some of those great truths that are included in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible uses a lot of great picturesque words to describe the atonement. And one of the central words that's used to describe the atonement is sacrifice. Sacrifice. But we cannot just simply think of sacrifice alone because included in the word sacrifice biblically, when we think about it biblically, is the concept of substitution. Sacrifice has to do with something dying. Or rather, something innocent dying usually an animal. Substitution means that that sacrifice or that death was in the place of someone else or something else who deserved dying. Now, when you hear of sacrifice and when you think of substitution, we get this concept and the exchange very early in the Bible very early on in Scripture. And the background of that exchange lies in the truth that all people who ever lived, who have ever been created, are sinners. A sinner is a breaker of God's law. 
And we know that the penalty of breaking God's law is death. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So all are sinners and therefore all must die. In fact, Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul that sins will die. And so death is inevitable. Not just physical death, but more importantly and eternally, spiritual death. In fact, we could even say that because of spiritual death, physical death comes. And so this is what we all deserve as a consequence of sin. But Jesus, John tells us, here we see it in the picture. Here we see it in reality. Jesus taking the death to himself by his sacrifice. He became the substitute of only those chosen to believe. Let me say that again. He became the substitute of only those chosen to believe. And he did that by experiencing death in their place. And as I said, this substitutionary reality is introduced to us very early in the Bible. In fact, it's in the first chapters of Genesis. It's in the first chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve sin. We know the story well. Adam and Eve sin, and they are immediately ushered into the reality of the consequences of sin. God warned them before, and He said to them, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, it's interesting, prior to sinning, prior to Adam and Eve sinning, they would not have had a clear concept of what death meant, or what death was. But they surely knew from the words of God, from the words of the one whom they walked in the garden of the cool of the day, they knew from those words that it was a serious consequence. So when they sinned, what did they do? They tried to hide from God. No one can hide from God. And so God calls them out of hiding, and He begins to deal with their sin. Now, if you and I didn't have a Bible, if we didn't know the end of the story, because we have been in the church a long time, or we've grown up in homes where the Bible is central in our home, if we didn't have all of that knowledge, we would expect that when they were found to be guilty of sinning against God, we would think, because of what God said, that they would immediately be put to death, right? God had clearly told them that in the day that they sinned, they would die. And here they are, guilty of sinning. So we would expect 
and immediate execution of the consequence. And if God did that, then none of us, no one could ever hold God accountable in some kind of wrong way. We could not accuse God of being unjust. It's what they deserve. But because we know the Bible, we know that's not what happened. Instead of God killing them, He rebukes the sin, and then He performs a substitutionary sacrifice before their very eyes. This was the first death they'd ever seen. It would have been shocking to see the blood the life leave the animal. The first time they'd ever seen anything die in that fashion. And it was accomplished by God. And yet not on them. It was on an innocent animal who had not sinned against God at all. And so what was God showing them? He was showing them that while they were the ones who had sinned, that it was possible for another. It was possible for a substitute. In this case, it was an animal to die in their place. An animal paid the price for their sin temporarily. I say temporarily because we know what the Bible teaches. Bible teaches us that the death of animals does not remove the penalty of sin permanently. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The death of an animal cannot remove the penalty, the guilt of sin permanently. So the animal was used as a symbol. It was used as a symbol of how sin was to be taken away. But that's all it was. It was only a symbol. It was no more than a symbol. The real and eternally effective sacrifice was Jesus Christ. So the full meaning of sacrifice in the Bible is really the word substitution. The full meaning of sacrifice in Scripture is the word substitution. It's a substitutional sacrifice. It is the death of one on behalf of another who can accomplish what needs to be accomplished. But that only leads to another word involved in and with atonement. And that's the word propitiation. Propitiation refers to what was accomplished by Jesus through his death in reference to our sins and what our sins bore upon God. In other words, what is inherent in the word propitiation is the wrath of God, which is pointed at all of us sinners. That's what's involved in the word propitiation. Propitiation is the word that 
refers to the work of Christ whereby the wrath of God against us, the sinner, is dealt with. And it's dealt with in such a way and in full completion of a way so that the grace of God through Christ could save us. Again, the Old Testament is helpful to show us what this truth is about. In fact, it's illustrated for us by the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you've never thought of the Ark of the Covenant in this way, but it's illustrated in the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant was the the primary piece of furniture in the tabernacle. The tabernacle being the temple of God while the Israelites were wandering in the desert. It was the primary piece of furniture there. We know what it is. It was a chest. Roughly, it was a a three foot by two foot by two foot high chest primarily. It was fully covered in gold. And on top of it was a lid and that lid was covered with gold and that lid was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat had two cherubim on it. Wings stretched out over the ark, faces down. And the ark was placed on top or the, uh, the lid was placed on top of the ark, and the ark was taken into the Holy of Holies, which was the most sacred part of the tabernacle. It was the place where God symbolically dwelled among the people of Israel. This was God dwelling with His people on earth. That's, that's what the ark represented in its greatest sense. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies only once a year, on the Day of Atonement. And so to get the picture in our mind, think about that. Think about the seriousness of that. There is the ark sitting in the Holy of Holies, a symbolic dwelling place where God is above the mercy seat, looking down, if you will, under which the lid of the mercy seat inside the ark is the law of God. The law which all of us have broken. And so as God looks at us, all He sees is the law broken by us. And as a holy judge, He has to judge sin. And thereby, He has to judge us according to that judicial wrath. So what happens? On the Day of Atonement, the high priest takes the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice and being very careful, very, very particular, very, very careful following every detail that God had laid out to Moses to give to Aaron that he might do it properly following the ceremony to the very letter. He enters the Holy of Holies where he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. place where God dwells. And so the picture is then that no longer is the wrath directed at us, the sinner. But rather now we receive mercy because God's wrath has been satisfied by the blood of the sacrifice. In other words, an innocent one has died The innocent one has borne the penalty 
and now we can live. That's the picture. That's the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And so this entire ceremony on the Day of Atonement, this entire ceremony whereby the high priest would go into the the Holy of Holies and perform this ceremony, the entire thing pointed toward the work of Christ, the work of Christ that He was doing right here in John chapter 19 and verse 30 on the cross. The blood of the sacrifice of animals sprinkled on the mercy seat all done ceremonially by the high priest, did not in any way remove sin. But it pointed forward to the death of the one who would remove sin, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus died and said, it is finished, Part of what he meant was that God's wrath against his elect was actually propitiated. It was actually satisfied. Not one day would it be satisfied. Not uh, hopefully as long as you do the right things would it be satisfied. Not, oh, maybe one day if you get your mind right and clean your life up right that you might see Jesus and might believe in Him and then it would be satisfied. No, if you are one of God's chosen, it has been satisfied. Therefore, believe. Believe. And we know that it was satisfied because when it happened, what did God do? When Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, what did God do? God caused the veil in the temple to be separated. The veil that separated him from the Holy of Holies, from the people, was torn in two. It was rent from top to bottom. God opened the Holy of Holies. God's access was free now. The symbolized that the way to Him was now open to all whom He had appointed to believe. Free. Here's the question we need to ask tonight before we close our time. Why did John include this in his Gospel? Why did John put it here? There's only one answer. So that we might believe. So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That He is the Son of God. And that by believing we would have life in His name because He did satisfy the wrath of God. Why would any of that work? Why would any of that work? Because Jesus is the Christ. And He is the satisfactory substitute. Because He is the satisfactory propitiation for our sins. Because it is Him and Him alone And in Him and Him alone, 
that there is life. We deserved to die for sin, yet Christ died for sinners like us. And when all had been accomplished, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. All because God had planned in eternity past, before time ever began, to save a people unto himself. And so I, like John, simply say, I trust that we believe. I trust that we believe. There is no other way under heaven. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only way. Some of us have heard that a thousand times and we still refuse to believe. So I plead with you. I plead with you young people. Believe. Believe upon Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for your word. The reminder of all that you went through for us who were sinners. The way in which you accomplished every detail. Nothing was put aside. Nothing was cheapened. Everything that was to be accomplished was accomplished. So that when you say it is finished, there is nothing left. All has been accomplished. And we trust that you will indeed, as you have promised, save those whom you call. Nothing can snatch those from your hand. We are secure there. And we know that you draw yours to yourself. Lord, thank you for these things. May these rest upon our heart and soul. Be fresh in our mind when we need to share them with someone else. And cause our hearts to leap with joy knowing that we have a satisfactory sacrifice for for our sin. Thank you for accomplishing these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.